Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I am your hostess, Pat Rulo, and today I'm so happy to share a recent Firebird Book Award winning author with you. He is Scott Newman, and his winning book is titled The Night Before the Morning After, and it won in the autobiography, new adult nonfiction, young author, and coming of age categories. Scott is a triplet from New York City who has spent the last eight years amassing a collection of bizarre, jolting experiences around the world. At 22, he has visited nearly 40 countries, and he loves skiing, movies, books, and a good party. He recently graduated from Princeton University, and he currently resides in Sydney, Australia. And I am so looking forward to this one. So welcome to the network, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Oh, gosh, my pleasure, and congratulations on the book win. Thank you. Thank you. You are welcome. All right, well, let's talk. The Night Before the Morning After is a rock and roll diary of your wildlife and times. Also, just a bit of an attitude about higher education within certain elite schools, shall we say. So I'm going to say, do tell, please. Give us a peek into the book. Sure, yeah. So I started writing this book... um, I was it was summer of uh 2019 I believe. Um I had done a lot of uh writing growing up and so you know when when the opportunity came to to start writing a book I jumped at it. Uh I was initially writing it as fiction because that was that was sort of my wheelhouse, but at some point my editor sort of came up to me and said, "Scott, where are you where are you getting all these crazy stories? Um everything from, you know, I had my main character Getting deported from England, uh, being kidnapped in the Jordanian desert, watching his boss get shot—all all this stuff—and he said, "You know, Scott, where where is all this coming from?" And I said, "Michael." His, his name was Michael. I said, "Michael, most of this is uh, pretty pretty heavily rooted in fact. Most of this is true." <laughs> and he said, "Well, you got to write this as a memoir." Then I said, "Michael, twenty-two-year-olds uh, don't write memoirs." And he goes, "Exactly." And so. Off to the races we were, um, and, you know, I took out the embellishing details and wrote a book, and for some reason uh, that continues to elude me, uh, people seem to like it. And so here we are, uh, almost a year later. That's funny. You say some people seem to like it. Some people don't like the book. What do you make of that? Um, I think that whenever you put uh, put put out a piece of art um, or take an opinion on anything, uh, there are going to be people who agree with you and people who don't. You know, that's that's sort of the nature of anything. And in fact, I would say that uh, if everyone agrees with you, you're, you're doing something wrong. Um, you're going to face pushback uh, whenever you have an opinion about anything. And I was sort of uniquely positioned to provide insight into a number of things um, that just due to personal experience. Um, And so I did. I think the main pushback, uh, as you know, was against my thoughts about uh, higher education at hyper-selective colleges and universities in the United States. To be honest, that was a a small portion of the book. Uh, It was only a couple chapters. This is, is, uh, I think it's like a 22-chapter book. Um, but that that was the one thing that uh, certain uh, certain factions of people took issue with. I found that interesting too, as I as I kind of delved into it prior to having this conversation with you. I thought that was interesting. That wasn't what the book was about. It was just part of the book, and yet 
Well, Princeton, the school, had something to say with it, and they have an opinion piece titled, What Can We Learn from the Scott Newman Controversy? It's like, oh my gosh, this poor guy just wrote this book trying to be as honest and as heartfelt as he could, and now it's become this thing. Yeah, um, so the university themselves never actually commented on the book. Mm-hmm. The the piece you're referring to as well as uh, accompanying other pieces echoing similar sentiments um, came out of uh, the Daily Princetonian, which is our campus newspaper, uh, and other uh, other outlets. Um, but yeah, as, as you mentioned, the book isn't <laughs> it's not really about Princeton. But at the time that you know uh, that I published it, I took a strong stance on on two things. One was on the the college admissions process uh, and the faults sort of uh, within that, and then also the experience of being at a hyper selective school like Princeton. Um, shared shared my thoughts on those, which I'm happy to to get into with you if you'd like. A number of people at Princeton, um, in particular, and other Ivy League schools, uh, were not happy to to necessarily read about these criticisms. They and I um, are are beneficiaries of this system. So whenever you sort of uh, defect, I think, from something that you're a part of, um, it raises eyebrows. That being said, I mean, my my whole prerogative uh, throughout the book and in in general was. You know, if something is not working, you should call attention to it. I'm I'm very grateful for my time um, at Princeton, and you know, I, I learned a lot. I'm extremely fortunate to, to have been able to go and, and learn there. Um, but I think a lot of things uh, within within that process could be could be improved. And happy to to talk about some of that uh, if that's interesting to you. Yeah, actually, it is because I find it interesting that you played the game, if you want to call it that, and fought to get in. You did what you had to do to get in. But then when you got there, I'm wondering, were you surprised? Was what you were finding there a surprise to you? Yes, it was very surprising to me. Then, you know, it wasn't it wasn't just Princeton. I was I was applying to lots of schools uh, as a teenager, like like many people. who gets sucked up into the sort of college admissions vortex are, um, you know, the, <laughs> we're talking about single-digit acceptance rates, and so uh, you have to sort of cast a wide net. I applied to quite a few schools. In the end, um, I was admitted to six of the eight Ivies, actually, as well as a number of other schools, as, you know, I, I sort of write about in the in the book. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I did play the game, um, but... Uh, and and I, you know I I don't think that um, for many people anyway it's it's a game that's worth playing. I think it comes with um, very real consequences that not a lot of people uh, think about as as 14 year olds when they you know uh, when they're on the starting line and they start they start sprinting. Um, but I, I was surprised by by a number of things there, um, beginning with the fact that. You would think that at a place of higher learning, um, people go in, you know, with with a growth mindset, with an open mind, they go in to learn. But what I found was happening um, at Princeton and uh, at other schools, you know, I, I can only speak to Princeton because that's where I went, but I had lots of friends who, who went to um, a variety of these schools and having read other 
stories on the internet um, from you know there's, there's this great book by William Dershowitz called the miseducation or is called excellent sheep the miseducation of the American elite um, and so I, I was surprised by by the fact that uh, you go into a place like Princeton and people seem to come out four years later um, a bit more closed-minded than open-minded uh, on a lot of things and that actually might have a lot to do with who they select to come to the schools I think it uh, does, you know, I don't know, it's always this difficult question of uh, does the house make the man or does the man make the house mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of question. Um, but, you know, one, one, of the, one of the main things I found uh, at Princeton and at other places is that there's this extraordinary emphasis on pursuing career tracks within either investment banking, consulting, or tech. Um, and, you know, kids come in, uh, with all different kinds of interests, and yet those are sort of seen as the golden gooses, um, the the holy trinity, the trifecta, um, and they're they're pushed on students from from an early age. You know, if we're, I'm not one to point the figure the the finger. I, I wouldn't know who to blame. Certainly, I don't think that the the students themselves are to blame. But you know, from from the minute I set foot on campus, I was inundated with uh, all all of these recruiting events for banks, um, all this kind of stuff. You know, four years before graduating, so recruiting timelines have certainly been accelerated in many of these professions. And I think that the the result of this is that you end up developing a very narrow focus of what's possible. First of all, and then you know what what you should be doing, like what a productive use of this education uh, would be. So that's one thing. I also found um, a prevailing orthodoxy on campus of generally left or liberal ideas uh, in the classroom and outside of the classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, dissent has, and I say dissent. Dissent from prevailing leftist orthodoxy has been more or less. Um, made to be unfashionable, both on campuses and and, uh, and also within American culture at large. But um, I think that on campuses, it's especially pronounced um, to the point that if you question something or you want to have a civil debate with someone, I mean, that used to be what uh, a university was for. You would have a forum for debate. Um, you would talk about ideas um, and, you know, you would come to your own conclusions. Now it seems that we start with the conclusion mm-hmm. um, and then anyone who sort of ventures off that track is made to be a pariah. And this is, I mean, this is a story that we've seen over and over again. Yep, Absolutely. Just churning out the same cookie cutter type of individuals. And, and you're exactly right. That's not what, what higher education, what school, what learning is supposed to be about. Exactly. I mean, you use the word learning. Um, I feel that rather than learn at a lot of these schools, um, people people sort of just reinforce their, their mm-hmm. pre-existing beliefs. And yeah. to be honest, I mean, this starts from a young age. Uh, I'm writing a column about this now, actually. Um, we're in the process of writing a column about this now. But I think one of the things about the college admissions process that, I mean, to begin with, this is a process that really does rob adolescents of the sort of fundamental formative teenage years that, that they're supposed to have where they develop social skills and emotional intelligence um, and all these things that come along with playing on sports teams and hanging out with friends and doing what, you know, uh, 
taking risks, doing things that, that teenagers um, are supposed to do. I say taking risks, not like reckless risks. Right. But, um, you know, just, just being a kid, being a teenager, um, that is all sort of uh, heavily discouraged, I think, by a process um, that that has very, very little room for error and exploration. And to that end, I think that the college admissions process, um, perhaps by reputation, um, you know, I, I, it's difficult to point to an exact cause of this. Um, but one of the effects, anyway, of, of the college admissions process is that it certainly encourages quite a bit of left-leaning political thought of, prog of a progressive social justice warrior mentality. And teenagers think that, you know, this is what the colleges want to hear. This is what I have to do to be, you know, an upstanding moral citizen of the world. Um, and in order to gain admissions to these colleges. And so they, you know, it's a cycle. They sort of play up and exaggerate their commitment to uh, causes of social justice, I would say, not because these are causes about which people are necessarily very passionate or causes um, about which people, um, you know, care deeply or have really thought critically about, but simply because um, these are causes that, will sound good on a college application. And so, unfortunately, you know, you know, it, it, the, the result you get from this is that people, you know, you know, just affirm the commitment to this, that, and the other thing over and over again until it becomes, you know, an ingrained part of their beliefs, which is, again, not, you know, it's not, it's not a learning process. It's starting with the conclusion and then, um, doing backwards reasoning, which is completely antithetical to the scientific method or to, to learning in general. Yes, you are right. That's interesting that you talk about that young children or young students are being robbed of those early years because they're thinking about, wow, what do I need to do to get into college? And so they, so they work on things that will make their resume look good, things they may not necessarily be interested in and shouldn't probably be interested in at that young of an age. But yet, if you want to get in, you've got to, uh, I guess, play the game. I used that word before, but it, it's kind of what it is. Yeah, you know, there's always this question, is it is it disingenuous? Um, you know, I think that some people certainly think that they care about these causes. Mm -hmm. For me, um, I never got uh, fully sucked into a lot of, um, or, or to to the far end anyway, of some of the social justice causes. But I would I would certainly say that adolescents are, for lack of a better word, curatorial about the sure. the kind of activities that uh, that they choose to privilege um, in uh, in their college applications. As we mentioned at the beginning, though, Pat, uh, happy to happy to talk about this as long as you want to have many thoughts on the matter. You know, this is a uh, a twenty two chapter book, right. so um, uh, uh, if there's anything else you'd like to discuss, uh, happy to do that or to to stick with this. It's, no. it's up to you. It's your interview. No, I, exactly. I was heading off to the next question. Then I just wanted to explore this a little because it's highly unusual. I haven't had a conversation with anyone of your age. It's just come off of higher education with the, with the experience and or the ability to voice their thoughts as freely and as openly as you have. So I did, 
I did want to dig into that, but no, I'm extremely interested in the collection of bizarre jolting experiences around the world. This 22 chapter book, is there one story that stands out to you as, as something we should talk about? Um, you know, that's tough. It's, it's sort of like, uh, pick your darling or, 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 or kill your darling. Um, and I've, I've, I've talked about, uh, some of these things before. I, I don't, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but the, the one story I always kind of tell because it's, uh, bizarre and it, it encapsulates uh, a lot of themes and also my attitude towards life was, um, or is, the story of getting uh, kidnapped in the Jordanian desert um, by uh, by a group of angry Bedouins. <laughs> so happy, Please. happy to talk about that if you'd like. Sure, just give us a peek just so we can tease our listeners. Sure, yeah. Um, basically, I had a scholarship with the State Department to go and learn Arabic in Jordan. Um, travel was always important to me. It still is very important to me. Um and it's really, uh, it's a lot more accessible than, than most people think, and uh, ha- happy, happy to talk more about that at length. But the long and the short of it is that I had a scholarship to go learn Arabic in Jordan my junior summer of high school. I went there. I was learning Arabic. I was with the host family, yada, yada, yada. We were out in the Jordanian desert one weekend, um, and there's, like, these, like, mountains in the desert. Um, I climbed up a mountain with uh, with another girl. Um, I think I renamed her to Lana in the book. I had to rename everybody, so I can't remember, but I think it was Lana. Um, and uh, we climbed up this mountain. We ended up descending a different face of the mountain. Then we ascended by accident. We walked towards the only lights we could see. Uh, we ran into this guy named Ahmed uh, and his affiliates. Um, he ended up putting us in the trunk of his car, drove us around for like 45 minutes. Um, we had to, we had to change cars a couple of times. It was a whole (laughs) nightmare. It was a big, it was a big smiling mess, but, um, you know, I made out of it. I I made it out of there. Okay. Um, and I just like to tell that story, I guess, uh, because I think it demonstrates a few things. One is, is sort of like, um, you know, if I could do it all over again, there's there's nothing that I would change. I would still go to Jordan. I would still go and learn Arabic, and I would still go and climb that mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, sometimes things don't necessarily uh, go as you planned. As you think it was Mike Tyson who said everyone has a plan until they get punched in the nose. Um, but you just got to sort of ride on, stay positive, and... Um, and embrace experiences for what they are. At the end of the day, you know, I don't know why they drove us around for 45 minutes if they were just trying to scare us or just having a laugh or whatever. But um, experiences are going to come to you whether you want them or not. Things things are just going to happen. And, and when they do, you can sort of freak out and let it ruin your night or let it ruin your weekend or week or year or whatever. Um, or you can just sort of shrug it off and say, oh, well, mm-hmm. that happened. Yeah. You know, and then maybe write about it or maybe just have it as a as a story to leave on ballroom floors. But um yeah, it was it was uh it was a hell of a time. Oh, I love that. I love that. I could see why your editor was reading this thinking, wow, where's this guy coming up with these stories? <laughs> That's a good one. Why did you title it The Night Before the Morning After? 
Um, the night before, the morning after, uh, that's a good question. Um, I think it just came to me one day. I, I have this little uh, notebook. I think in recent years I, I sort of started doing it on my iPhone in the notes section. Um, but uh, it just came to me one day, this phrase, the night before, the morning after, and I wrote it down, and I knew this needs – first, it, you know, it needs to be a chapter in the book, and it is. It's the, the final, the, the penultimate chapter in the book. Um, and, and then I got thinking, you know, this would be a perfect title for the book. Um, this, this encapsulates very much what I want to say, um, you know. Uh, it, it, and I guess the, the short answer is because it's always the night before the morning after. Yeah. You're always on the cusp of something. There is going to be an end to whatever you're doing. So enjoy it, ring the juice out of it, and really make the most of it while you can because the dawn lights are coming. The sun will will rise in the morning again. Um, and whatever you're doing, you know, whatever has happened to you, good or bad, um, it has an end. Everything is finite. And so, you know, steer into the skid kind of thing. And, um, you know, if it's bad or if it's good, you know, relish in it mm -hmm. and enjoy what you can because uh, nothing lasts, nothing folks can stay um, to, you know, to quote the famous uh, Frost poem. Right. I think it's Frost. So in an interesting way, this book is also a book of hope. It is. It is very much a book of hope. One of my favorite, one of my favorite characters is also a tragically flawed character. But one of my favorite characters, um, uh, to whom there are countless references in the book, is Jay Gatsby. And I think one of the most compelling things about this character was that um, you know he was really possessed with this undying hope. Um, and it is, it is a book about hope. It's about remaining hopeful. You know. Romantic entanglements don't work out. That doesn't mean you should give up on love. You know, whatever doesn't work. You know, just because something doesn't work out doesn't mean that uh, you ought to give up on it. Um, everything, everything is an experience. I had a friend recently who, who said to me that you know everything that happens in your life um, is either, or everything that happens to you is either a reason, a season, or a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I thought that you know. It's, like a little kitschy and rhymy and whatever, yeah. but um, I thought that was nice. I thought that was a good, a good expression of reason, a season, or a lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, and another friend who said, you know, life is life is like a train. Some people ride with you for one stop. Some people ride with you forever. Mm -hmm. um, but you're 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 going to be on the train for the whole time. And you know, other people will will sort of come on and off along the way. Other experiences will happen along the way. Um, but it is very much a book about uh, a book about hope and about really, you know, making the most of things and enjoying um, sort of the the big the, the chaotic succession of events that that encompasses our lives. Yep, yep, yep. Not always easy to do, but um, you know, I'm wondering when you're an old man, Scott, what are you going to think of this book? I guess we'll say if if I become an old man, we'll oh, see if I on. make it there. Um, I don't know. You know, you look back. Um, you look back on 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 things you've done in the past, um, and you always, you know, there's, I think that there's a temptation to question. But I, I I put this in the book. One of my favorite quotes is from this guy Paul Arden, and he said. Um, it's better to regret what you've done than what you haven't. Um, and one of the main themes in this book, or 
one one of the themes anyway in the book is uh is sort of uh, this notion that um missing out on something or, or FOMO or FOMO. whatever you want to yeah. call it is 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 a horrible feeling. There's this great quote from um Vonnegut, it was it's it's bastardized from a Maud Muller poem, but he says, Of all the words of mice and men, the saddest art might have been if there are, if there were things like you know even like little things I re I reread sentences I go back and say you know I'd like to change that I think that happens with anything, um, but uh, on, on a larger scale what am I going to think about this book I think I'll be happy that I sort of have this documentary evidence of some of my early formative years I mean this book covers uh, my life henceforth from fourteen. My mother died when I was 13, um, and I think in some ways that was a catalyst uh, for, uh, you know, getting interested in, in writing, and also it made me realize the, the fickle um, and, 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 frankly, short-lived nature of life. And so um, I wanted to it, – it gave me an appreciation um, of, of what it is to live and how much of a limited time we all have here, and so – I sort of tried to live life to the fullest after that, and um, and yeah, I, like I'm happy to have this this piece of documentary evidence about that. I'm looking forward to, to writing more. I was going to ask you that. What's next? Do you have anything in your mind or anything in in the works? Yeah, so I'm now working as an editor for Quillette um, for an online magazine. Uh, they it's it's edited in in Sydney, Toronto, uh, and London. Um, one of our editors is in Nashville, actually. Um, recently moved there, but um, yeah, I'm working. I'm doing editorial work, so I'm writing for them. Uh, or I, look, I've just started a couple of weeks ago, but I'm going to be writing for them. I'm doing editorial work for them, and so that's really exciting. Uh, I really love their publication. I've been following them for years. Certainly, ideologically aligned with their mission, their advocacy of uh, enlightenment values, and of really, um, you know, embracing debate and civil discourse. Um, and so. Uh, doing editorial work, so I get to write, which is good. And then uh, I don't mean to, to tease too much, but probably at some point in the future, I don't know when, there will be a another full-fledged book on um, on the Australia years. But I, I won't say too much about that. That's all um, that's all tentative at the moment. For now, we'll stick with editorial work, and uh, <laughs> you can read my columns in, in Quillette. <laughs> in other places. Excellent, excellent. So why don't you head us in the right direction so that we can find out more about you, where we can get a copy of this book, anything you want us to know about you, where we can find you? Uh, sure. Um, you can find me first and foremost, I guess. You know, I, I have a website that has all the details for everything. It's scottnewmanwritingofficial.com. Um, the best place to buy the book, frankly, is Amazon. Um, they, you know, ship globally. I've had people in, I don't know how many countries, but it, it's listed anywhere in the world you are, you'll be able to get a copy of the Amazon book. If you want to email me, um, I'm always happy to chat. Uh, my email is snewman477 at gmail.com. 
My Instagram, which I use uh, quite frequently, is also snewman477. And so if you want to keep up with me and my adventures, I would say take to Instagram or send me an email and happy to chat. Excellent. All right. We're talking with Scott Newman. The book is titled The Night Before the Morning After. And his website is scottnewmanwritingofficial.com. I have to tell you, I like you. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. I like you too. <laughs> I do. It's very refreshing to uh, just have somebody be very to the point and honest and say what they have to say without regard to the consequences. I find that extremely refreshing. So thank you for sharing you today. Thank you for entering the book contest. I'm happy to have read your book and I hope we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure, Pat.